Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Dennis. For those of you I haven't met, uh, we're going to be continuing our series this morning in the book of Mark. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there now. It'll be in Mark chapter 11. It's on page 899 in the Pew Bible. Uh, but just as a, uh, as a heads up, this will be our last week in the book of Mark for a few weeks. We're going to take a break for Advent, and we'll have an Advent series that's looking at the four reasons for Christmas from Hebrews chapter 2. So that'll start next week, and then uh, we'll return back to the book of Mark in January and finish up our series from there. So this morning, Mark chapter 11, we'll start in verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit, for a wine press and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed." He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Well, the question that is asked and ultimately answered in our passage this morning is a question that is just as relevant in the 21st century as it was in the first. And the question is this, what authority does Jesus really have? What, what kind of authority does Jesus have? What, what makes him an authority on matters of religion? What, what makes him unique and better than any other religious teacher, better than the teachers in our text today and better than religious teachers across all times? What gives him the right 
to tell us how we ought to live our lives, to tell us how we ought to worship, to tell us what we ought to believe. What is it about Jesus that gives him this kind of authority? Well, to put it simply, the answer and the main idea in our passage this morning that we will see is this. Jesus has all authority because he is the Son of God. So listen to him and embrace this good authority. Jesus has all authority because of who he is. He is the Son of God who has come from heaven. So we must listen to him and embrace this good authority. In other words, we must do the opposite of what we'll see the religious leaders doing in our text this morning. So we'll begin by looking at the first section, verses 27 through 33 in chapter 11, where we'll see the question of authority. We'll see this question. And as we look at this passage, though, it's important to keep in mind what's been happening in Mark's gospel up to this point. So this would have been now uh, Tuesday. That's when these events take place. Tuesday of what is traditionally called Holy Week, this last week of the life of the Lord Jesus. Two days prior on Sunday, you'll remember he rode into Jerusalem on the colt and the crowds are celebrating, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there's excitement, there's welcome, uh, there's praise in a sense. And then on Monday, which we looked at last week, in a passage that's especially relevant to what we'll see today, we saw the cleansing of the temple where Jesus went into the temple, he's turning over tables, he's driving out those who are buying and selling, he's driving out the animals, everything that's hindering true prayer and worship in the temple, he is driving it out, he's shouting, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And then in our text this morning, we're going to see just how much attention Jesus has drawn now, and just how upset He has made those who are in charge of the temple, the religious leaders who will come to him. But remember also that it's just a few days away from the cross. Friday is coming. This is the final week of his life on earth. So as we look at this passage, keep uh, this broader context in mind because you'll see that the tension is building, the conflict is escalating, and it's all heading towards the cross. So starting in verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his disciples, as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. So Jesus is back in the temple, and if you piece it together with the account we have in Matthew's gospel and Luke's, uh, we know that Jesus was also teaching, and he was preaching the gospel, Luke says. So here Jesus is back in the temple the day after he just cleansed it, caused this huge scene in the temple, and he is there preaching and teaching and walking through the temple when the authorities come and stop him. Now, these three groups, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, were the three groups that made up what was known as the Sanhedrin. And if you remember from back in Mark uh, 8, and I think also Mark 10, Jesus already told us what's going to happen from these three groups of people. These are the three groups that he predicted are going to kill him. So red flag should be going off. But this, uh, this group, these three groups of people, made up the, the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin, uh, which was the, it had 70 members, it also included the high priests, and for all practical purposes, this was the chief authority in the land for the Jew. It was under Rome's ultimate authority, of course, 
but Rome gave much of that authority and the daily matters over to the Sanhedrin. They judged uh, many cases, both civil and criminal. It was so powerful that the first century historian Josephus says that even Herod did not disobey its summons. So this is a powerful council. This is a powerful group of people. They were also, of course, the authority over all things pertaining to the Jewish religion. So they are in charge of the temple, and Jesus just insulted their use of their authority. Not only that, but they are the ones who were authorized, or they were the ones who authorized rabbis. So they were the ones that gave their stamp of approval on those who were teaching God's word. So in some sense, they are doing their job right? They are, uh, this is in their sphere of authority. The temple was their sphere, the, the uh, authorizing rabbis. So in some sense, they should be involved. They should be inquiring about who this Jesus guy is, this self-appointed rabbi, what he's up to, who he thinks he is, and why he's doing all these things. But the problem, as we will see, and is as, as often the case, the wrong people are in power. It's the wrong people who are in positions of authority. So before we analyze their question and see Jesus's response to their question, we need to be clear on who they really are, what they really are about, what their tensions intentions are in this conversation. So you remember, immediately following the temple cleansing, back in verse 18 of chapter 11, we're told this statement. It says, the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. So the crowd, they hear Jesus, they see what he does, and they're just in awe. They're in awe of this man. They're in awe of his words. They're in awe of his actions. So the crowd is blown away, but not everyone. Right after that, it says, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. That was their response. The crowds are in awe and wonder, who is this guy? He, he, something is up. God is doing something. The chief priests and the scribes, we have to kill this man. That is their response. The crowd is in awe and wonder. The authority is in fear and hatred. Not only that, but they are jealous of Jesus. It said in uh, Mark 15, 10, that when Pilate heard their account, it said he perceived that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. It wasn't really about these theological differences. It wasn't really about their concern for the welfare of the nation. No, they are jealous of Jesus. They're proud and they're afraid of him. They hate him. After all, they're the teachers. Who is he to teach them? They're in charge of the temple. Who is he to tell them how it ought to be run? They were the ones elected to this, this respectable position. Who is he to question their authority? And it's from this place that they ask in verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? In other words, what gives you the right, Jesus, to come in here and do this? What gives you the right to tell us how we are to act and what we are to think? So in a sense, they are seeking to discredit him, but they are also up to something far more sinister than that. Remember, back in verse 18, they started looking for a way to kill him. And what we have here is their first attempt. This is, their, this is the plan that they came up with. This is their first attempt at looking for a way to kill him because they're hoping to get a clear, blasphemous answer of divine authority. 
is so that they will have some kind of charges to hold against him in a trial. In, in other words, as they come to him with this question, they're not actually wanting the answer, but it's a trap. They're seeking to trap him in his words. But how does Jesus respond? Verse 29, I will ask you one question and then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. So, so John's baptism is really shorthand for the whole ministry of John the Baptist. So his, his call for people to repent of their sins, to be baptized uh, for the forgiveness of their sins in preparation of the Lord's coming. So Jesus is asking, what did you really think about John? What, what did you really make of John the Baptist and his message? Because if you can answer that rightly, if you can answer that correctly, you will have your answer. Now, the religious leaders, Mark made this plain in how he told the story, the religious leaders don't like this question at all, right? They now find themselves in a trap of their own, and they have to discuss it among themselves and try to come up with a plan on how they can answer this. Because right away they say, well, in verse 31, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, that doesn't work either because they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So here's the predicament. If they're honest and say what they actually think, they will say of human origin. But they can't do that because they are driven by fear of man. They're afraid of the crowds and they're afraid of losing their respect and their trust and their admiration and their place of authority. Because the consensus on the crowd was, of course John was a prophet. Did you hear him? Did you see what he did? Of course, this is God's messenger preparing the way. So they can't say that publicly, but at the same time, they can't say from heaven either because honestly, they didn't believe John and they didn't listen to John. They didn't go humbly to be baptized. Uh, they didn't repent of their sins. They thought they were above that and had no need of that. So they didn't actually listen to John. So they're caught there as well. And worse still, surely they have heard what John has said about Jesus. In John 1.34, John said openly, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So John himself bore witness about Jesus that he was the Son of God. So if they answer this question rightly, they will have their answer about who Jesus is and where his authority comes from. But they don't. They refuse to answer the question altogether. Uh, verse 33, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. We don't know. And we don't know is not a sincere answer. We know that. Which shows once again that there was no sincerity in their original question either. They don't really want to know who Jesus is. They don't truly want to know where his authority comes from. They don't want to know why they should listen to him. They don't want that at all. What about you? Do you really want to know who Jesus is and what that might mean? Do you truly want to know where his authority comes from? What makes him different from every other religious teacher in the history of the world, every other system of belief today? Do you truly want to know if you knew what that would then mean for your life? If so, here's the good news. Jesus always answers honest questions. And those who sincerely seek him will always find him. 
If you come to him and ask sincerely, he will reveal himself. But like the religious leaders of his day, he can also see through the facade, right? He knows, he knew their hearts. He knows my heart. He knows your heart. He knows all things. He knows our true desires as well. And I was reminded of a couple years ago, I was meeting with a younger guy who wasn't happy with how things were going in his life up to that point, Uh, just some different things of how he was hoping certain things would play out, uh, and everything was just kind of not working as he wanted. He wasn't getting fulfilled, essentially, what he was wanting. And after some initial discussion and hearing from him what he thought his problems were, I suggested that perhaps what he really needed was Christ. Perhaps what he was really looking for and all these different things where he was trying to find happiness and they were failing him, perhaps Jesus was what he was truly looking for in all of these things. He said he was open to that possibility uh, and agreed to meet for a few weeks. We we were planning on sitting down and reading the Bible together and talking about it. He even prayed at one point, you know, God, show me who you are. Uh, Show me who you are. So, I was excited. I was hopeful. You know, maybe this will lead to life for this young man. Maybe good things are coming. He's asking. Uh, let's see. But the sincere, sincerity of that prayer quickly came into question. So I, I told him before we met the first time, I told him the passage we would read. Not a long passage. Uh, not a long passage at all. So I, I show up. I say, all right, so you read it? And he said, uh, no, I didn't read it. Okay. I, I mean, you, I know I get it. You're busy. You're 19, you don't have a job, you don't go to school. I know you're busy. Okay, sorry, it's a joke. Uh, but he didn't read it. He, he couldn't read it. So I said, okay, I'll read it for us. I'll read it out loud. I'll do the hard work. Uh, I'll read the passage. So I read the passage, I made a few comments, and then I asked some questions. Almost all the answers were, I don't know. I don't know. Or a shrug, or maybe. It, it, it was that kind of response. Okay, so he asked a couple, of, in the end, he asked a couple questions uh, about the reliability of the Bible and, and things on that topic. I was like, okay, I was like, here, I, I have a book, read this first chapter. It'll, it'll answer your questions and we can talk about it. Okay, that's great, right? I show up the next time. What'd you think of the chapter? I didn't read it. What? <laughs> what? You, you didn't read it? And after, for, after meeting for a month or so, he, he told me, you know, I gave it a chance but after, you know, I did some reading on the internet and I've decided I don't, I don't believe. I, I confirmed I don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I gave it a chance. And I'm thinking, what? You gave it a chance? <laughs> you, you couldn't even read five pages. You, you, you wouldn't read for a moment. You wouldn't even think about, you wouldn't even think about these topics or really discuss them or enter into any conversation. You did not give it a chance. There was no sincerity. And here's the thing, God always sees through the facade. He he sees through the games. He knows when questions are asked and prayers are prayed, and there is no real desire or intention to have an answer to the question or the prayer. And if you don't want the answer, you won't get the answer. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus said to the crowd, everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks it will be opened. Such a gracious promise. Everyone, this is open to everyone who asks, and you will receive. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door will be opened. But here's the thing. You have to actually ask, not just pretend to ask. You have to truly seek, not just give the pretense that you are seeking. You have to truly knock at the door. 
Not just pretend and act like you're knocking. What do you gain by pretending to knock? Nothing. No one will ever come to a door where no one is knocking. But if you truly ask, Jesus, who are you? Are you, are you really the Son of God in power? Did you really die upon the cross and rise from the grave? Could it tr- really be true? I need to know. I'm desperate to find out. I want to know. If you, if you approach it that way, and with true seeking and truly desiring an answer, whatever that might mean for your future, you will have an answer. And then you will find Christ to be everything you were seeking and more, and then the door will be opened, and you will find rich welcome into the kingdom of God. But sadly, that wasn't the case for those who are questioning Jesus in our passage. They refuse to deal with him sincerely, and so they do not get an answer here. Jesus tells them in verse 33, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, Jesus could have ended the conversation right there. He could have, they had their chance. This is how they came. He could have walked away and and been done with it. But in his grace, he gives them more. What Jesus refuses to tell them plainly, he does so nevertheless in a parable and a prophecy. And that is what we have in the beginning of chapter 12, which is the next section that we'll look at here. But as we'll see as we go through this, they get a lot more than they bargained for. Because Jesus tells them not only where his authority comes from in the parable, but he also tells them what is going to happen to their authority that they've abused. So verse 1, it tells us that he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. You'll notice that it's parables, plural. Uh, Here in Mark's gospel, we have one of those parables. You can look at Matthew 21 later today if you want to see more of those parables and get a fuller picture of the whole conversation. Uh, But the parable that we have here is more than sufficient. It's the parable of the vineyard owner and the tenant farmers. Now, before we look at this parable directly, I want to give a little bit of uh, biblical and historical background that uh, plays into this and give some helpful context. So as Jesus begins this parable, the religious leaders and many in the crowd would have instantly thought of an Old Testament passage. They would have instantly thought of Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, which is uh, commonly known as the Song of the Vineyard. And I won't read it in its entirety, but listen to these opening verses and, and listen for the similarities. Isaiah 5, verses 1 and 2. The one I love had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it, even, and even dug out a wine press. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. And the song of the vineyard goes on to talk about all that the, the owner of this vineyard has done for his vineyard. And in verse four of the song, it asks this sad question where, where, where the, the, singers, uh, right, or the vineyard owner says, what more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done? What, what more could I possibly have done for this vineyard than I have done. But even still, it never yielded the fruit it was supposed to. And as a result, uh, as the song goes on, the vineyard owner tears down the hedges and takes down the walls that are around the vineyard and allows it to become a wasteland. And verse 7 of this song makes it clear that the vineyard owner is the Lord and the vineyard itself is the people of Israel and the men of Judah. And the Lord 
would not continue to protect and provide and show special care to this vineyard, to his people, as they worshiped false gods, as they engaged in all manner of wicked behavior and perverse behavior and and defied his every commandment. He would not continue to protect and care for a vineyard that was running that way. And the song was a prophecy of the coming foreign invasions and the destruction that would come at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The result would be exile and captivity, the loss of the temple, the loss of worship, the loss of the kingdom itself. And it's important to keep those things in mind because all that would have come to mind with the beginning of this parable. Jesus takes this well-known prophecy that was fulfilled hundreds of years earlier and he reworks it as a parable for the current moment. With that in mind, in verse 1, you once again have a man who plants and establishes a vineyard. He, he puts a fence around it. He digs uh, the wine press. He builds the watchtower. And just like in Isaiah chapter 5, here in our parable in Mark, uh, the Lord is the vineyard owner, and the vineyard represents the people of Israel, God's kingdom people. But notice in this parable, there's another group of people mentioned that isn't mentioned in Isaiah. The tenants, the tenant farmers who are uh, running and working the vineyard. By the end of the parable, it's abundantly clear that these tenant farmers is a reference to the religious leaders that Jesus is interacting with. They even get it. At the, at the end of the, the verses here, verse 12 says, they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So it's plain. A lot of times parables aren't. This one is. It's directed at the religious leaders. So continuing with the parable, verse 2, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. So the vineyard owner, he does the expected thing at the time of harvest. This is his land. This is his vineyard. He is in charge of it. He has worked on a deal with these tenants. So they are entitled to their share as part of working it. He is entitled to the rest of, as the owner. So he sends the servant to collect what is rightfully his. And before we look at the response, don't miss the connection between this passage and Godwin's passage that he preached on last week. What is the owner of the vineyard looking for? Fruit. He's after fruit, just like it was with the fig tree where Jesus went. There was no fruit, just like here. There is no fruit for the vineyard owner. The servant has come to collect it. And once again, as God is looking for spiritual fruit, there is none to be had. And you can go back and listen to Godwin's sermon from last week if you want a fuller explanation of, the, of the, the fruit that he was looking for. But in summary, there is no true worship. There is no righteous living. There is no godliness as there ought to be among God's people. Why not? Who is responsible for this according to Jesus? The tenants. The religious leaders. The tenants are to blame in this passage. The tenants are the ones who bear the responsibility for the lack of fruit. How so? Verse three, but they took him, that's the servant, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And they don't just do it once, but you read they do it over and over again. God is gracious. He sends more servants to come. And with each one, they beat them, they reject them, they treat them shamefully. Some they even kill, but all of them, They reject. None of them do they listen to. 
And this, of course, was a reference to the Old Testament prophet. So what Jesus says here is not a new complaint. It's not a new charge. Israel has heard this over and over again. Listen to what the Lord said in Jeremiah 7, verses 25 and 26. He says, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. So from the day I brought them out of Egypt, from the very beginning, I have sent prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger, and they have continuously not listened to them. They have closed their ears. They have refused and rejected them over and over and over again. And you can think of the prophets. You can think of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Elijah, Zechariah. You can come up with a long list of prophets who came in God's name and were treated shamefully and rejected, abused, many even killed. And the religious leaders in Jesus' day here are standing right with them. They're standing, according to Jesus, in a long line of those who have continuously rejected and refused to listen to God's prophets. And once again, history is about to repeat itself again, but this time with another. Verse 6, he still had one to send, a beloved son. A beloved son. Now we've heard about a beloved son on two other occasions in Mark's gospel. The first time being at uh, Jesus' baptism when John baptized him. Once again, a reference to John's baptism that we already saw with the question. And it was at at the baptism of Jesus where there was a voice that came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So we heard of a beloved son at his baptism and then also at the transfiguration where Jesus' appearance was changed and his glory was shown to those who were up on the mountaintop with him. And once again, it says, a cloud appeared overshadowing them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus Christ is the beloved son. That is who he is. That is is his identity. He is the eternally beloved son of the father. That is who this Jesus is that was walking on the earth and interacting with these religious leaders. And they got their answer. They got their answer to their original question. And we get our answer as well as to who Jesus is and where his authority comes from. Well, it's obvious once you grasp that he is the beloved son of God who came from the Father above. Of course he has authority. Of course we should listen to him. Of course nobody else's opinion means anything. He's Jesus. He's the beloved son sent to us. And Isaiah 5, 5 couldn't be more relevant here again. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done? He sent his beloved son. But in verse 7, it says, but those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. The inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. So the tenant farmers do the unthinkable. The beloved son comes, 
and they kill him. They did not respect the son, as they obviously should have, but they murder him and show him the utmost disrespect by not even giving him a burial, but just throwing him out of the vineyard. Let's just get rid of him, kill him and toss him, get rid of him. And their foolishness is they thought that that settled the matter, that somehow by doing that, they would be free to rule as they desired. But oh, how wrong they were. In a few moments, we will see that they haven't gotten rid of the son at all, but only by their rejection have they actually established his reign, have they actually established his rule, all of which was foretold. foretold. But for the religious leaders themselves, their rejection of the Son of God is the final straw. This is the final straw, and it is the rejection of the Son that leads to their own rejection from God. Instead of protecting and securing their own authority, they end up losing it all together by trying to get rid of Christ, the Messiah who was sent to them. And what they will face now is judgment and destruction. And this judgment would reach its climax in 70 AD when Jerusalem and, and the temple itself was destroyed, which brought the end of this whole religious system as they knew it, the end to temple worship as a whole. But even decades prior, even while the temple still stood, it was no longer relevant. The kingdom did not belong to these men, and the temple was not the place where God's glory dwelled. They were no longer in charge, but a new temple was being established with new leaders, new tenants, to use the words from the parable previously. Drastic changes were about to come, which would result in fruit, which would result in true spiritual fruit among God's people. And this drastic change, these changes all start with a stone. A stone. Look at verses 10 and 11. So Jesus asked these leaders another question, and this time it's in reference to uh, a prophecy that was about the Messiah. He says, haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. And the scripture he quotes is Psalm 118, verses 22 through 23. And this psalm was well established as a messianic psalm during this time period. They knew that this psalm was a reference to the Messiah. You'll remember uh, that it was already quoted from uh, just a couple of days earlier during Jesus's triumphal entry, where they shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is from this psalm. That is a quote from this psalm as well. So this is a messianic psalm that they knew was going to be, that was about the Christ who was to come. And here Jesus quotes yet another part of this psalm, and he applies it to himself. Now the surface level answer to Jesus' question is obvious. Have you, have you not read the scripture? Haven't you read the scripture? Of course they had read it. They probably had it memorized. They probably all knew it, all the religious leaders that were there at least. But what he is really asking is, don't you understand? Don't you understand what this means? Don't you, don't you know what this is about? Don't you have any clue? Are you totally blind to this? And again, on the surface, the meaning would be plain as to what a cornerstone was and what it would be like to have be rejected. So builders would reject stones until they found one that was perfectly straight and could serve as the cornerstone, which was uh, just crucial to the overall symmetry and stability of the building. It was the most important part 
of the structure. It, it was crucial, it was central, it was foundational. So they know the physical meaning, but they're blind to the spiritual significance. They are missing what this means in relation to God's Messiah. Jesus is the stone that the builders, who are the religious leaders, rejected. Jesus is the stone that Psalm 118 is talking about. The religious leaders are the builders that are rejecting him now and will completely reject him just a few days later when they crucify him. But obviously that's not the end of the story because the rejected stone doesn't stay rejected but becomes the cornerstone. Three days after being crucified, Jesus will be raised from the dead and made the cornerstone of the new temple. Not a physical building made with hands, but a spiritual one that's made up of all those who have put their faith in Christ and united to themselves, united themselves to him. It's a new spiritual house, as second as first Peter 2 puts it, that we read at the beginning of our service, where Christ's people offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus himself. And these people will be fruitful because they are connected to and built upon Jesus who gives them life and vitality. And fruit is the necessary response when you are connected to the life-giving Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He is at the center of it all. And this is the new temple where God dwells and is worshiped among his saints. It is his people. It is Christians as they gather together for the purpose of worship. Just as we are here, we are God's temple when we gather on Sunday mornings. And God is present among us and dwells in us in the same kind of holy and mind-blowing way that he previously dwelled in the temple. God is among us and present. But the religious leaders were willfully ignorant of all of this. Instead of considering this warning, they're, they're getting a warning as clear as it can be about what they are about to do. Stop, don't, don't go down this path. This is what you are about to do. I am the stone. You are the builders. Do you understand? But they don't care. In verse 12, they leave Jesus, they go off, and as we'll see, they just continue plotting on how they might kill him. How they might reject the stone once and for all. And don't make that same mistake. Don't reject this precious stone that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. Jesus alone, it is through him alone that we have access to God and can draw near and worship. It is only through Jesus that we can know God as we were intended to do. Christ alone is the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Don't reject this stone, but see it as the precious jewel that it is, because Jesus is far more precious, infinitely more precious than anything this world has to offer. Believe it. Ask Him to show you that. And as we come to a close the answer, once again, to that question we had at the very beginning, where, where does Jesus' authority come from? How can he tell us these things? Why should we trust him? How, how can we know he can deliver on these things? Why should we listen at all? Well, that answer becomes even clearer. We see 
as, as we look at the whole passage, we see that Jesus is the Son of God who was sent from the Father above. And though he was rejected by men, he was nailed to a cross, he was shamefully despised and tortured and killed. He was raised three days later and he is exalted forevermore as the cornerstone who will never fail. That we can be confident in, that we can trust in. So let us treasure this cornerstone and let's build our whole lives upon him. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are precious. You are the stone that the builders rejected, and yet you are the cornerstone. You are central. You are the most important person that has ever walked this planet because you are the Son of God. God, would you help us to feel the weightiness of these words? Would you help us to know how, how glorious these truths truly are, that you dwell in our midst, that we are connected to Christ and have life, and we will never perish. Christ will never fail, and therefore our hope will never fail. So we praise you. We thank you again for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.